You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. The very first national elections in New Zealand occurred in 1853, when there were only 5,849 registered voters. In order to be registered on that electoral roll, voters needed to be male, British subjects and property owners. In addition, they were almost exclusively Pākehā. Over time, the franchise was extended to Māori and women. Today, the current electoral roll numbers more than 3 million people. In this series, we feature presentations which cover a broad range of stories from Aotearoa New Zealand's evolving systems of governance, going all the way back to 1853. Okay, so our next speaker is uh, Dr. Toby Borriman. Um, he's a lecturer in politics at Massey University, and he's studied many social movements in Aotearoa, New Zealand, working at the Waitangi Tribunal previously, and has been secretary of the Labour History Project. So my talk is about economic inequality, not other forms of inequality, and its relationship with politics in this country in recent years. Um, so the first thing when we, so inequality is probably the biggest issue as judged by polls when people are asked. It's often related to housing or to rich and poor or to child poverty, but it generally is the biggest one since 2014 as far as I'm aware. So this is a, a really hot topic. Um, and I think the thing to understand about inequality to start off with, it's not just about child poverty. It's not just about poverty. It's not about individual failings, but inequality is definitely a social relationship. And it's a social relationship between different groups in society. And I think that's the best way to understand it. So to put it in very crude and simplistic terms, as the rich gets richer, the poor get poorer. And you can really see that with the housing crisis in New Zealand. So a lot of people are becoming homeless and living in cars like that photo down below. Um, and that's a direct relationship, I think. And I know a lot of people could disagree with me between how there's been a rise in housing speculation, um, a rise in people um, buying uh, rentals for their own gain. And this has forced a lot of people out down the, the bottom end of the housing market. And there's a real shortage of affordable housing in this country. So I think, yeah, the key thing to understand inequality is it's this relationship. And at the top end, you see a lot of opulent displays of wealth that wasn't really prevalent in this country before the 1980s. Okay, second slide. So I want to talk a little bit about um, COVID-19, the current global pandemic and inequality. As it says there, I think COVID-19 will probably deepen inequality in society so that this issue will become more important rather than less important. And there was this fantastic little speech from a Newsnight presenter on BBC early on during the pandemic by Emily Maitlis, who warned that coronavirus is not this great leveller as a lot of people think it is. In fact, it's going to hit the lower paid much harsher. So I think the key thing to hear, understand here is that natural disasters don't affect everybody equally. Like, you know, there's a lot of narrative out there that we're all you need to unite against COVID-19, that COVID-19 can affect anybody, whether you're rich or poor, regardless of your ethnicity or gender, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, natural disasters tend to affect people down the bottom who've got less resources. So they're less resilient and they, they find it harder to overcome big hurdles and they tend to be more vulnerable because they live in worse uh, living conditions and tend to have poorer health. Um, and you can really see this in this country in terms of economic inequality. Like most people have very little savings, so they can't really ride out a crisis like COVID-19. So um, a recent survey found 58% have less than $500 in the bank. 
and 25% in 2018 had no, no savings whatsoever. And then of course there's major health disparities, particularly in terms of age for coronavirus, but also in terms of ethnicity, um, in terms of class, in terms of disability and things like that. Those people are much more vulnerable in general, not all, but that's just a generalization. And then unemployment, and this is the big issue that's gonna hit a lot of us. Uh, we're gonna see a global depression happening, if it hasn't happened already, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1930s. So unemployment's gonna kind of soar, and it already has, and it tends to affect people down the bottom a lot higher. So the people who are being laid off, and this has been, there's been some stats come out about this already, and it's disproportionately affecting Māori, disproportionately affecting Pacifica, um, youth, the under 30s, the precarious, which means people on sort of casualised labour who don't have permanent jobs, and the low paid, and those are the type of people who are being laid off. So for example, you'll see in universities in this country, a lot of people who are being laid off or not having their contracts renewed are precarious teachers and precarious um, tutors on short-term contracts. And, um, and I think this will continue. And then to think about the long-term impacts of um, inequality is that as governments have intervened in such a major way in the economy by providing wage subsidies and subsidies to business to keep operating, um, then how will they pay that off? So there's the long-term future that governments will restrict their spending, what's called austerity, to deal with this. And that means they'll have less space to deal with things like inequality. Okay, so this is what I'm gonna talk about today. Um, those are the three things I really wanna talk about. I firstly wanna talk about what I'm not gonna talk about. So the inequality is a really deep, complex, contested subject. Um, so what I'm not gonna talk about is all, all forms of inequality. I'm just gonna talk about economic inequality, which is income and wealth inequality. I'm not gonna talk about different conceptions and political perspectives on inequality. I'm not gonna talk about um, the debate about the effects of inequality, the social and economic effects and psychological effects on people and health effects. I'm not gonna talk about the debate about solutions and the debate about causes of inequality. And or even, um, but what I am gonna do is talk about uh, the extent of wealth and income inequality in this country, then some brief notes about voting and non-voting and inequality, and then the effects of inequality on government, or government policy, where they're going to go. So to go into the extent of inequality, so this is a global phenomenon since the 1980s, there's been a real concentration of wealth at the top. Um, and this is from stats from Oxfam, have found that the poorest 50% of the world, that's four, four billion odd people, equals their wealth combined equals the wealth of the top eight richest people in the world. This is in 2017, so these figures are slightly out of date and these, the, the percentages of these people would have moved around quite a lot. But so these top, they're all men, own as much wealth as the poorest 50% of the entire world. Um, so the question is whether this has happened within New Zealand or not. And we're going to throw you a question now. Maybe, maybe Michelle will help me out with this. Um, yep. So bring this up. So how much wealth do the two richest people, that's just two people in this country own as a percentage of the total wealth of the adult population of this country? So any so guesses? Okay, everyone, yeah, in the chat room, what do your percentage guesses, yeah? No one's typing. Come on, folks, have you got the chat room open? Here we go. Shona's had a guess at 80%. 80, whoa, that's quite high. Anybody else going to have a guess? Yep, 65. It's lower. Someone's put YT. 
Hmm. What's that on a keyboard? Oh, 40%. 40, closer. Yeah, I got 35, 32, 35. That 32 is closest. It's actually 30, around 30%. Around 30%. So there's just two people own as much wealth as 30% of it combined. Um, so these are the two richest people in the country. This is Richard Chandler and Graham Hart. Uh, admittedly, a lot of their wealth is owned offshore. Um, and then the final question. How much wealth do the bottom 50% of this country own collectively as a percentage of the total wealth of their population? So any guesses? So how much wealth do the bottom half of our population collectively own? So shown at 15, we've got two 15s. 15, it's lower. It's lower than that. Mm. Wow. We've got a couple of 10s. I'll give you a seven. No. <laughs> Wow, lower than seven. Mm. Do I go two? Yep, it's two. Oh. 2015. It's only 2%. So it's quite startling figures here as well. Um, so if we visualize this, this is a fantastic cartoon from Toby Morris, who did some research on this. Now, this is actually based on research done by Mass Rashbrook, which is the leading sort of um, academic research into inequality. And this is thinking about New Zealand as a whole. Uh, if we all lived in the same building in terms of wealth and how much of this building we'd actually own if in proportion to the wealth we own. So the top 1%, if you can see my cursor here, would own, you know, two and a bit floors to themselves right at the top. That's just 1%. But the bottom, and you see the flashing light down the bottom and here in the basement, that's the bottom 50% of the population would only own one third of the basement. So there'd be, you know, two and a half million people crammed into this tiny little basement. And then of course there'd be some people living outside who are homeless. So there really is quite a stark, uh, way of visualizing that. And then if we look at income inequality, which is the sort of the other side of inequality, wealth inequality I think is far more important than income inequality. Um, but income inequality has increased a lot in this country. And you can see this line here. This is again from Max Rush's book. You can see how from the early 1980s, the richest 1% have really had a, a massive spike in their income every year. Um, now it's about 2.5 2 times higher, you know, $500,000 per person. And the richest 10% have seen a growth since the early 1980s. They've probably doubled their income, over now $100,000. But you can see down the middle and, middle and the poorest people have been really put behind with really stagnating incomes over time. That's real incomes adjusted for inflation. And we particularly had a really stark period of rapidly rising income inequality in the 1980s and 1990s when we had the fastest increase in income inequality of any country in the OECD, which is sort of the wealthy countries of the world. Since then, it's leveled off a bit in terms of like an average income inequality um, for various reasons, which I'll talk about later. Um, and another way to look at um, income inequality is look how much income is going to labor rather than to business. So you can see in the late 70s, early 80s, um, labor had a, one of the, high, I think it was the highest in history percentage of, of, of the share of income. Of around 70% this is without self-employed but then it's gone down since now to about 60% in 2016 so that's a massive transferring of income to the to a small number of business owners and this is research done by Bill Rosenberg um, and of course when we talk about economic equality they're always intersected or um, intermerged or interlinked with other forms of inequality like gender, ethnicity, disability, sexuality, and so forth. So here's some, just some stats to sort of show that in action. 
Of course, gender inequality is related to economic inequality, and you can sort of measure that to some extent by the gender pay gap, which is measured by the government at about 9.3% in 2009. That's the average earnings, I think, a male will earn over a life in a year or a lifetime, I'm not quite sure, compared to, to women. Um, but some feminists dispute this and think that it's actually a lot higher. But I think this more stark figure is this figure from Max Rasbrook that since 1991, if you take unpaid work, a woman in unpaid labour and paid labour as, as a percentage of all men's income, it's stalled around 60%. So it's really important when we think about gender inequality to look at unpaid work because that's still predominantly done by women in, in the home and in terms of care work, for example. But it's quite hard to quantify that gender inequality um, in terms of its relationship to economic inequality. Now to turn to ethnicity. So if we look at the different ethnic groups um, in this country, you can see a quite stark inequality. So the average individual Pākehā net worth as an individual is 138,000 in 2018. So this is the most recent figures I can find. For Asians, that obviously is not an ethnic group. There's obviously Chinese, Indians, etc. in there. But it's 46,000 for Māori, it's 29,000 and for Pacifica. Again, not really an ethnic group. You've got Tongan and Samoan and so forth, Cook Islander in there. It's 15%, so they're the, the poorest ethnic community in this country, if you like. If we look at age, it's another sort of social stratification. Young people don't have much uh, wealth, only 2,000 on average, um, 15 to 24, but older people, because a lot of older people own their own house, is highest at 416,000. And in terms of um, looking at um, the different bottom 10%, they own, own more than they own, so that means they're in debt rather than um, in the in the black, if you like. Um, so that's so the point that I made there about economic inequality is that it's a lot higher than a lot of people think, even though I did ask people earlier and they found that the extent of the ownership of um, the top two people um, people overestimate that, which is really interesting, but in general when people are polled, they've found that um, they underestimate the actual extent of inequality. So now to look at uh, inequality in voting. So the first point to make here is that there's very little New Zealand research by, uh, about this topic. Um, there's one fantastic book put out by Jack Fowles and Hilda Kofa, I don't know how to pronounce her name, and Jennifer Curtin about the 2014 election and inequality, which is really worth re reading. It's also available for free online. Um, but besides that, I haven't really found much research. I'd be happy to learn if there's more out there. Um, but there's a lot of research done overseas about how um, increased income inequality leads to various political changes. And the one I'm going to look at here is this decline in participation in elections. So that's the study by, done by Fred Salt in the United States. Um, so the two years I want to look at, and there's many different things you could look at in terms of voting and inequality and the, and the relationship between the two. And the first is the effects on electoral participation, in other words, voting patterns, and then the effects on representation. Um, so if we look at voting patterns, um, so you can see this decline in voter turnout. And Grant spoke about this earlier, um, and the, the one to really look for, you can see this general trend from the early 1980s to 2017, a general decline of declining voter turnout, even though that's gone up in the last two elections. So the, the key line here is this grey line, which is the, the percentage of people who vote who are eligible, who are over 18, the voter age population, BAP, rather than people just on the general roll, because a lot of people don't actually enroll, even though I think it's compulsory to be on the roll. Um, so our turnout in the last election was almost 74%. 
and almost 940,000, almost a million people did not vote in 2017. And the people who tend to not vote more than others are people who are right down the bottom, who don't have much resources or power. So it's low income households, beneficiaries, Maori, Pacifica, new migrants and youth especially. So only about 50% of under 30s voted in 2014. And I think there's a really strong relationship is in, in, in income inequality goes up. I think um, voter turnout goes down in general, not always, as you can see in the last two elections. And so, so why has this happened? And of course, there's a huge debate in political studies about why this happens and many theories voiced. And I'll just show a couple of them. And I should say that all theories don't explain everything because there's many, many complex reasons why people don't vote um, or vote. And one of them is the rational choice model, which is sort of looking at the world in a very rational, calculating way where you sort of weigh up the costs and benefits. And if the benefits outweigh the cost, then you vote. And if you, if the benefits, if the, <laughs> the drawbacks outweigh the benefits, then you don't vote. And so there's some research done by Jack Fowles about this, saying that um, when the election is considered, perceived as a sort of foregone conclusion, like when National in 2011, um, the voting turnout goes down because the, why, why vote because National is going to get in anyway. But the problem with this model is that not everybody thinks in such a rational, calculating way and they don't vote for many other reasons. Um, and one model which has really not been applied to New Zealand, which I think it should, I think it's a real major gap in the research, is this radical abstention model. And this directly links um, inequality with non-voting. So when you have increased inequality, more people don't vote. When increased marginalisation, more people don't vote. Because um, they, they lack power and influence and they think that why vote because I'm not going to have any power and influence over what happens. And they become dissatisfied with democracy. Even though Grant stated earlier that our levels of democracy of dissatisfaction are quite high. Um, but they are much higher amongst non-voters. So there's a couple of people who have kind of investigated this a little bit in New Zealand. I think there should be far more research. So Jack Foster and Dylan Taylor down at Victoria University have argued that non-voting is related to neoliberalism, which is sort of free, free market economics, if you like, Rogernomics, euthanasia, that type of thing in the 1980s and 1990s. And, and this is also related to increase in inequality and the decline in working class representation and mobilisation through things like trade unions, as, as unions have declined. And Sylvia Nissen has looked at, um, in a little book from Bridget Williams' books, about student participation. This is tertiary students at the universities and she's found out and she interviewed a lot of them and found out they, they aren't politically disengaged or lazy as a lot of people can think but they don't vote because they feel ignored and they feel powerless and alienated by, why, by what they see as a professional political elite serving its own interests. Um, and I just want to briefly address some reasons why people do vote um, and how that relates to inequality in terms of some big social strata applications like class. And I think as class voting goes down, you can see this trend um, over time, um, non-voting goes up in general. I think there'll be a link there. Again, there's not much New Zealand research on this. So the major research done on this is by Jack Bowles and others in that book, Bark, Not, But, No Bite. And he sort of um, tries to quantify this by saying that Labour votes are pro-working class, which is, can be disputed by many people, since, particularly since neurogenomics in 1984, but it's one marker we can use. And he looks at people in manual, that's blue collar, and service households, pink collar households voting for Labour over time. And you can, you can see a really steep 
So this is called Class D alignment. So we had strong alignment with working class people supposedly voting Labour and um, middle class and above voting National. And this has changed over time. So this is called a process of Class D alignment. You can see it go right down to 2002. But since then, it's picked up again. And I suspect in 2017, it's gone up again as, as inequality has become a major issue. And the Labour Party has talked about transformation. Um, so to briefly talk about ethnicity and voting. Um, as I hear a siren in the background. Um, so I think with Māori, as Maria Bash talked about earlier, a lot of Māori feel marginalised by the system here that um, because of colonisation. And so there's a higher level of distrust of what they, many would see as a sort of settler government here. And so the, the high, that I think helps to explain a lot of why Māori non-voting is a lot higher. And of the people who do vote, there's a strong link, of course, with the Labour Party and, by looking at the party vote in the Māori electorates into, over time since MMP. Um, and to quickly look at gender and voting, again looking at the 2014 um, election, you can see there's a slightly higher percentage of women not voting than men, but it's a, not really statistically significant. I don't know the 2017 figures, sorry. And you also can see that women tend to vote a bit more Labour than National. I think that would have increased at the last election. Um, then I'm going to return to inequality and representation. So has our parliament become more diverse over time? Um, so this is definitely related to what Grant was talking about earlier. Um, so the, the question here is that do marginalised groups who don't have that much power in society, are they becoming more, more present in parliament and the governments that are formed from parliament? Um, so there's some contradictory evidence. So most of the literature out there about our mixed member proportional system, which came in in 1996, has largely praised it. And I think we need to think more critically about that because definitely on the one hand, MUP has produced a far more diverse and multicultural parliament, especially for women in Māori. As you can see, the percentage of women in parliament has really gone up, or the numbers of MPs, sorry. This is 46 out of 120, so that's 40% in the last election. Um, that's the highest ever, but again, women are underrepresented if you look at the percentage of the population, the 51% of the population are women. Um, and Māori actually overrepresented now, you've got 27 out of 120, which is higher than the proportion of Māori in the general population. But many groups are still underrepresented as a proportion of the population they are. So women are, Pacifica are a little bit, Asians definitely are, uh, youth definitely are strongly, underrepresented, disabled are strongly underrepresented in Parliament, and the working class, which is the vast majority of the population, are underrepresented in Parliament. Um, so the key thing to when we think about descriptive levels of representation, as it's called in political studies, is that this does not necessarily mean that if you have greater representation in Parliament and within the executive, which was formed out of um, Parliament, that doesn't necessarily mean they produce policies which will help these groups, there's many other different factors at play um, in terms of what government policies and legislation is, is passed. And of course, many groups, of course, are not uh, essentially the same. There's many different, you know, conservative, conser you know, there's the range from left to conservative within every <coughs> different group in society. Um, so the question I want to raise here um, relating this issue to economic inequality is that the House, and I don't think there's enough critical commentary in the media about this or within academia, 
I'm not sure if any, there's been any research done in academia about this, but the House, that is the Parliament, House of Representatives, has become definitely more uh, wealthy. Um, there's far more wealthy people in there than there were previously. Um, and there's been a narrowing of occupation, occupational base of MPs. So more MPs are coming from wealthy backgrounds. So 30% of 2017 were from business, farming or managerial occupations. And I calculated when I added them up about 83% of people in, of MPs in 2017 were from white collar occupations. So blue collar people were pretty much under, completely underrepresented and pink collar as well, that service workers um, are definitely underrepresented. Um, and a lot of people working for, coming from government or working for political parties in that sort of white collar occupation. So those are the sort of predominant occupations. And so this leads to this feeling out there in some sectors of, of the community that um, politicians have become distant from ordinary people um, and produces this disconnect and distrust. Not always, I think some politicians have got far better at connecting with others than um, other politicians have or portray themselves as part of common people. But definitely this is a major trend and I think we need to be critical of this trend within Parliament because it's often not um, discussed much as far as I'm aware in the media, apart from people like Bryce Edwards. Um, so this is the final part of my talk and this is about the effects on um, government policy, the direction that government takes in, the, in their legislation and their policy agenda and the decisions they make at executive level. Um, again, there's hardly any research about this in New Zealand. I don't think there's any actually. So there's a huge research gap. So if you want a research project, this is one you could look at doing. But there are quite a few studies over in the United States about it, um, including some really important ones by Martin Gillins, who's looked at the um, influence of affluent people on political power in the country. And he's found in a really important article which put out, was put out, I think, in 2014 with co-authored with Benjamin Page. And this is, I think it's freely available online. Um, and they say that actual policy outcomes strongly reflect the preferences of the most affluent, but bear virtually no relationship to the preferences of poor or middle-class Americans. Obviously, it's hard to quantify um, policies, whether they actually, their outcomes are favouring certain groups or not, because obviously there's a debate about that, but it's, I think it's really important research to consider. Um, and then a number of other commentators have picked, picked up on this around the world, and one of the most important of course is Noam Chomsky, who's a famous uh, Jewish intellectual in the United States, and he's had a recent documentary come out called Requiem for the American Dream, which looks at the how as wealth is more concentrated in the hands of the few, how this influences um, political power and how there's a direct link between the two. So he says, as, as quoted there in a little online article, saying that the lower 70% of the wealth income scale, in other words, what I would call the working class, have no influence on government policy whatsoever. And, but as you move right up to the top of the ladder, um, maybe the, the 10th of 1% people essentially don't get what they want. In other words, they determine the policy. So he says the proper term for that is not democracy, it's plutocracy. So I think that's quite a stark and almost brutal statement. Um, but what he means by plutocracy is by government by the wealthy. Unfortunately, the term plutocracy is probably, um, it's quite disputed in history. It was used by the fascists in the 1930s to describe Western democracies as being plutocracies. Um, and that sort of leads into that sort of fascist far-right theory, conspiracy theory that, you know, there's an international Jewish banking conspiracy controlling the world economy. 
Um, so a, maybe a better term than plutocracy is a civil oligarchy, which is ruled by the few, um, and not by the military, as in a normal oligarchy. Um, and also, John Chopsy raises this really important point um, when we think about inequality, that we have to think about how capitalism, our predominant economic system, sort of conflicts with our representative democracy. Um, so to Chomsky, and I know this is quite controversial to some, he sort of says that capitalism is undemocratic by its very nature. So um, I'm sure pretty much everybody here has worked and in workplaces, the question is, do you have any democracy there? Or do you have a, you might have a very little limited democracy, but I would say on the whole, um, workplaces are not democratic. And so he raises this fundamental question, if you've got um, if the way the economy is organized is undemocratic, how does this conflict with this representative democracy that we've got? Um, obviously, there's a major tension there. And this type of um, global elite and its effect on politics has been picked up by many authors around the world. And now it's starting to see um, in popular type of books, of, um, authors are starting to address it, like Tristia Freeland's book about plutocrats. And I think she makes a really important point because a lot of the time when people think about the influence of the, uh, the so-called global super rich, that um, it's not about sort of people sitting away in smoke, smoke-filled rooms sort of deciding our lives and what's going to happen. It's more, far more complex than that, I should say. That, you know, the, the people at the very top often actually don't rule. They hire other people to rule for them. Um, but that's another point. Um, and they're often really divided and they have much competition and conflict between each other, I might say as well. But they convince themselves that their personal self-interests and their collective interests as being wealthy people are in the interests of everybody else. So you often hear this in the media explicitly. Um, it was definitely very explicit with the previous government that what's good for business is good for everybody else. That's sort of the ideology behind it. Um, but this is not necessarily true when you think about what's good for business might not be good for the environment, it might not be good for workers, it might not be good for Māori, it might not be good for women, etc, etc. Um, so it's a really a big step and I think we need to question more of that. Um, and there's many other authors have addressed the sort of what's called the democratic deficit, a sort of narrowing of democracy that's occurred since these sort of free market neoliberal policies have become largely dominant in wealthy countries around the world and in many poorer countries as well. And so you've got a, a really interesting book by Wendy Brown talking about undoing the democracy, the demos, um, the sort of stealth revolution. And then you've got a, probably the major New Zealand author which has kind of addressed that. I know there's heaps of New Zealand authors that have addressed neoliberalism, but probably the most popular is Jane Kelsey. And she, she wrote a book um, five years ago called The Fire Economy, which is the, um, what is it? Um, finance, insurance and real estate economy and how Financial deregulation in the 1980s has led to a lot of financial speculation and an economy based on that and how that's really narrowed, has caused inequality and narrowed um, the politics that is, uh, that, that is possible. So it's a really interesting read. I should say, as a counter to this, this point I'm making, that there has been a narrowing of democracy as um, wealth has been more concentrated, that many governments around the world have not sort of cartel to the global elite. There are many differences around the world, so you find that some countries are still relatively equal, even though they're becoming a slight more unequal. So you've got this sort of Scandinavian model, you've got the North European model where they still retain uh, a quite comprehensive uh, welfare state um, for people 
and permanent work, not casualized work, as I found in Germany when I lived there. Um, and then you've got places like Japan, which is still relatively egalitarian compared to other countries. Um, and then, of course, you've got variations over time. So not all governments um, have stuck to this rigid sort of free market agenda. There's been a moderation of um, neoliberal policies in many parts of the world, including this country, since 1999. So there are changes and shifts, and government do have uh, autonomy and ability and agency to change things. Um, so this, this, this theory can be a bit simplistic, but I think it's still worth considering. Um, so then to turn to my last three slides, and time is good. Um, so I want to address really briefly about um, this, what's happened here in this country in terms of government policies and the direction the governments have taken and their relationship to economic inequality. So you could argue, as um, Mike O'Brien has, who's a, who's a social policy um, author in academia, that um, he's argued that child poverty policy in New Zealand has been a government policy failure. And what he means by that is that there's been extensive inaction by governments rather than action about it. Um, so policy failure, the classic example of, of, of a, a policy failure would be climate change. There's been widespread knowledge since the 70s or 80s by governments that climate change is a major issue, but very little done substantively about it over time. Um, so can we apply this to inequality? And I think there's some evidence that we can. There's various government policies that were bought in in the 1980s and 1990s, which have increased in inequality quite a lot, although I recognise there's many other different causes for inequality. Um, one big one is cutting tax rates for companies and income taxes, particularly for the wealthiest, in the 1980s, which led to a sharp rise of in income inequality, and I'll show a slide about that in the next slide. Then we have benefit cuts in 1991 of 25 to 30%, the people who don't write down the bottom had their rates of benefits cut. We don't have any wealth taxes in this country. We had a few, few, but they were abolished. Um, so we have no capital gains tax. I think we're the only wealthy country in the entire world which doesn't have a, a major capital gains tax. We have a thing called a bright line test on on-selling of housing within five years, a, a tax on that. But that's, as far as I know, the only wealth tax in this country. Then we've had the Employment Contracts Act, which has instituted an employment relations system which hasn't really changed since 1991 which has led to a decline of unions. So unions have declined from about over 50% of workers were in unions in the 1980s, mid-80s. And now it's down to 17%. And it's actually lower, I think it's only 10% for a private sector, people working in the private sector. And this has led to a rise of low-paid work, the sort of so-called low-wage economy. A lot of service jobs have replaced um, normally higher-paid manufacturing jobs since the 1980s, as deindustrialization has happened. We've seen the rise of precarious work, which is short-term temporary work, sort of casualized labor, and the associated gig economy with sort of Uber drivers and Uber Eats and so forth, where you just get a, a little gig for a while and then you find another one and you have several jobs at the same time. But then you find that this work often is quite low-paid and it doesn't really pay the bills as um, living costs have risen. Um, and then another sort of government inaction is that there hasn't been much state housing development for a long time, even though I see Labour has built several thousand state houses and wants to build several thousand more. Um, so to look at a slide about this, this is again from Max Rashbrook. Um, and this shows how government policy does really impact income inequality. Um, 
So New Zealand before in the 1950s, 60s, 70s was one of the more egalitarian societies in the world by looking at sort of income and wealth and inequality. And then this inequality really took off when you, the Labour government at the time, 1984 to 1990, dropped the tax rates, half of them, brought in GST, which is a regressive tax. And then another big steep change happened here when the Employment Contracts Act and the Benefits Cuts was done at the same time by a national government. As you see this rise in income inequality and you see a small dip when you have the major policy which attempts to alleviate inequality brought in by a Labour League government in 2004 and then since then it's sort of stayed sort of similar for, apart from a big dip, big increase during the global financial crisis or after it actually and I think it's slightly gone up since then. So you see a clear link between government policies therefore and income inequality going up. But on the flip side, arguing against this sort of maybe simplistic portrayal of um, government inaction causing inequality, or policy which actually exacerbated inequality, um, there have been some policies since 1999 which have attempted to neutralise or stabilise income inequality particularly. And the big one, of course, is uh, working for families. So this is brought in by a Labour League government in 2004. So it's tax credits for people with kids. And that's been extended to people, beneficiaries, children as well, which initially wasn't. Um, and this has helped out as so many people. You know, often people receive um, $100 or $200 a week. Um, so it's a big help. And it was increased in 2017 and 18 by the current Labour League government. And this is probably the major plank that governments have got with trying to deal with inequality so far. We've had increases to the minimum wage. It's another uh, plank is not as major as working for families. This is to help people down right down the bottom. Um, and we've, uh, so the minimum wage has been increased by both Labour and national governments successively, and particularly since 2010. So for example, um, in 2010, the minimum wage was 12.75 per hour, and the current Labour League government has just increased it to 18.90 per hour. So that's a big increase. And I think they want to get up to near the living wage, which is around, what, $21 per hour? I'm not quite sure. Um, and finally, uh, another government policy which is, will alleviate um, inequality is benefit increases. So National in 2016 raised benefit rates for the first time in real terms um, since the early 1970s in this country by about 8% after there was a small um, public campaign about raising benefit levels. And then Labour again has increased them recently um, during COVID-19 and they've indexed them to the consumer price index for the first time but again, you could argue that is this enough because um, now we have this two-tier job seeker um, system or unemployment benefit um, whereby people during COVID-19 have made, made redundant but during COVID-19 now get over $500 per week whilst people on the normal job seeker allowance get over $200, $200 per week. Um, but if, as you can see, there is major government inaction, particularly about wealth inequality, and there's many, many different reasons for this, but pretty much no government has really acted about trying to do something about wealth inequality. And it's very much a political hot potato and very divisive, and there's many different opinions out there in society. And, and you can see this by how Labour wanted to, as far as I'm aware, bring in a capital gains tax. I had it recommended it to them by a working party, but then pulled out. Um, New Zealand First, I think, had some say in that. And then since, since then, Jacinda Ardern has said that she's not going to bring in a capital gains tax whilst she is Prime Minister. So, to sum this all up, 
um, inequality is a lot higher than most people assume in this country. It's a bigger issue and it will become a bigger issue with COVID-19 as a natural disaster will definitely increase the level of inequality in this country as we see far more unemployment as we hit this sort of global depression like we have never seen since the 1930s. Um, but it could be sidelined at the 2020 election. So that's one question I want to ask you. Um, will it still be in there? Because I think it's definitely interrelated, but I think a lot of people will just be thinking about COVID-19 and climate change and maybe other issues. But all these issues are interrelated and they should be interrelated in my opinion. Um, you could argue there hasn't been much government action about inequality yet, even though it's a huge issue, apart from government for families. Um, and I do just want to say something briefly about solutions. And so economic inequality is such a complex and contested subject, which means that simplistic solutions are not going to really help, help it. It's so, related to so many different things, global economy, local economy, um, the way capitalism is organised, the way government act and don't act, um, the extent of civil society actions, so sort of protest movements, trade union organising and so forth. And all these complex factors come into what's possible. But hopefully after COVID-19, um, people will think that there's more possibilities now that we've seen what governments can really do. Okay, so I'll end it there. Thank you. very much Toby um, extremely confronting as well as thought-provoking really and it will be an interesting few years in politics as you say at the end because you know our focus will very much be I think the referendums will actually and mm. the economy and the economy itself and and something that's been on my mind a lot is how we're going to pay for what we're having to do right now because we really do need to do it but how that's going to affect us in the long term. And then you think historically, I wonder if there's been any analysis of how the different countries dealt with the depression last time and what worked. And are people advising the people today about that? <laughs> that's a great question. I'm actually a labor historian um, and a lot of what I produce. And I think there's probably an ignorance of history about what worked and what didn't in the past because people think the current period is completely different from the past yeah. but i think there'll be many parallels yeah and uh, we can look at what happened well in the 1930s what happened was of course changing sort of economics came in when previously sort of a free market doctrine was very much in evidence you know that, that they thought when they came into a recession you should cut back and cut back and cut back more right and then changing economics which is sort of said you have major government intervention to help stabilize the economy, boom and bust cycles and help out down, people down below and boost the demand of people down below so they have more uh, buying power and this is supposed to create more and more demand, right? So this is basic economics, but I'm not an economist, um, but you could look at that. That was the way they got out of the depression last time. Yeah, I was a bit shocked at the trade union statistic um, yeah. and a couple of people also, did you really say seven, ten, seven? One seven, yeah. And you think it's lower now? Um, it probably has gone down, yeah. My, no, I think some unions have gone up slightly since COVID-19 have come in, but I'm not quite sure. But it's less, I think it's about 10% for private sector. So majority of people in unions today are in public sector unions, like nurses and teachers and so forth. Yeah, because um, I don't think I know anyone working in a private sector job that's in a union. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things. So 
Um, you know, a lot of it's just commentary, so I won't read all of it out. Um, but Philippa did say a very sobering Friday. Um, Michael Bassett spoke about optimism being the New Zealand political style and that we needed to get a little bit more realistic yesterday. Um, and yeah, you just pointed out all the reasons why. Um, Adele has said, who can talk about professional lobbying in New Zealand? I do wonder if big money disenfranchises me, the ordinary voter. And then she said, further to my question, it's probably not the word disenfranchised. Let's say I just feel that my vote may not count. Can you comment to that, Toby? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, and it really gets to the heart of all this because um, the way our society is organised, that some people have a lot more power than others, have a lot more wealth and resources. And this is really reflecting in lobbying, even though we think that we're in a sort of pluralistic democracy where all our voices get heard. The, you know, there's been studies being done that the people at the top tend to have more influence. I think you, you can really see that with, say, a group, if I can highlight one, a really effective lobby group in New Zealand is called Federated Farmers. And they are very vocal. They, I think they're the best resourced lobby group in the country. And they get their way a lot in policy. Not always. There's sometimes governments bring in stuff, but they have managed to overturn a lot of policies which they dislike and stop, and particularly on climate change. I know this is a really touchy issue for a lot of farmers, but farmers have managed to stop bringing in a lot of, um, through their sort of lobbying, governments um, bringing in sort of um, measures to deal with climate change. And I think that's a really important example of how that works. But we still do live in a democracy. So the, if we've seen major protest movements happen in recent times, there's been this huge upswing in protest coming from youth, it's not just Black Lives Matters, but we've seen huge protests about climate strikes last year, which, you know, like, I think, what, hundreds of thousands of people participated in climate strikes. We've seen huge protests about free trade agreements and various other movements. The Me Too movement is out there. Um, and I think this will put a lot more pressure on politicians to, to, to change. And I think this is definitely reflected in how politicians now are taking much more notice of inequality and are talking about um, transformation. So I think there is hope. My worry is, thinking about political states around the world, how there's been definitely polarisation happening around the world. So even though a lot of people are going to protest and want change against um, ruling elites, there's also a lot of people going to what I would call the populist right, sort of the nationalist right, who would, you know, a la sort of Trump, who would blame migrants for issues, you know, for economic yeah. um, issues. That extremist, but... Yeah sheltered yeah exactly we seem to have avoided that so far funnily mm. enough one of the things i always admired about new zealand when i first came here was the fact that people were prepared to be very um vocal and mm. i i don't know um toby you're probably too young but there used to be marches every friday night in queen street mm. they were political marches every week on all sorts of topics it mm. seemed normal to have mm. a voice Yes. And in Australia, that as, as my growing up in the 60s and 70s there, it, you didn't do it. And I can still remember going and marching in Australia in the early 90s when the bombs were going off again and um, it, it was a threat of the nuclear testing again in Tahiti. It was seen as this huge horror that, you know, a few hundred people marched in the streets. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas here, we still valued that voice. So I think it's a co very interesting cultural difference yeah. for me. Okay. Well, I, but we know, have gone quiet in the twen 21st yes. century. Yes, I've, I've written about this. So I studied 
social movements in the 70s. And there was, you know, us, 1970s was, was our protest decade. Yeah. Long 1970s, culminating with Springbok tour in 1991. And then went into the anti stuff in the, the 1980s and so forth. But we had a huge protest culture and it was normalised. Not with everybody, there was still a conservative wing of the population that disliked it. But it was definitely, we had a, a culture of that and it was really interesting. And that has dissipated over time. Yeah. There was a lot of protests against the neoliberalism when it was first brought in from rural communities and workers and whatnot. And the employment contract, there was huge protests, hundreds of thousands. But since the early 1990s to about 2015, there was a real decline in protests. There were some big spikes, but it's come back now. So I think that there is a, the protest culture is starting to come back, particularly it's been driven by youth. Mm. And so things have changed. Well, history always changes. And uh, yeah, the interesting thing is when people get aware of stark inequalities and so forth, I think when it filters down to people down below, then people take action more. They want to do more stuff about it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Philippa also said, do you think oh, the universal income would help? Well, that's a great question, UBI. Um, yes, but it depends on what, what extent of it, because there's, to put it bluntly, there's a right-wing version of universal basic income. So that's an payment to everybody, regardless of whether you work or don't work. And it'll be a, a, um, an amount paid every week by the government to everybody. So this would help people who are precarious, you know, in and out of jobs, um, people, help people, beneficiaries, just help everybody to get by on a weekly basis. But then the question is how much and what is affordable? So some right-wing people would want to have it quite small and they want that to replace all other benefits right but those on the left tend to think that it should be much more generous and the benefit system should still be in place for those who need more so i would argue personally that people who need more actually need more money so having a universal system um is dangerous on that regard to it's going it to be an economist nightmare with the oh yeah how to calculate it coming yeah. up um we also had quite a lot of debate about um, voting in general so um, I just because I'm just really painfully aware we've only got about nine minutes to go sure. um, so one of the comments Philip said the rational choice model he hear it often to make voting easier and specials because many people now work on Saturdays so mm -hmm. that was another one of those inequality comments at that that point you were speaking yep. Um, do you see us doing um, other models or, I mean, I'm always grateful we don't have the Tuesday or Thursday thing like other countries do. Um, the, it is Saturday, so more people are free to go and vote in general. Mm -hmm. But do you see online voting being incorporated in as an additional tool? Oh, definitely. I think that will help to overcome a lot of people who can't, who now work on Saturdays. Because a lot of people do now do work. Because of the rise of casualisation, we don't have these set hours. And also yeah. we're working much longer hours. So I think online voting would really help that. I think online voting is best for people who are young though, who are digitally savvy. It tends to be much worse for people who are older. There's a digital divide as well. So some people actually don't have major internet access. So we need to be aware of that. And we found that out, you know, for example, the last census, which was completely online, and so many people mm -hmm. did not fill it in. So we have to be aware of that. I think but having a multi-pronged approach can help alleviate that. I think we're a lot better than the United States where they have voting just on a set day and it's really restricted. Yes. And not, not even very many polling booths in some yeah. locations. Yeah, all of that. Um, lastly, uh, Bob actually um, added a really lovely comment uh, or question. Did the protests, so we're going back to that protest yeah. period. Did protests reduce when Labor introduced the concept 
of legal versus illegal strikes? Um, that's a great question. Thank you for that. As a labour historian, I'm happy to field that. I think there's a really strong, to talk about strikes in general, there's a relationship between the level of strikes in, in, in the workplace and inequality. So that when people strike more, they tend to get more. So employers have often concede to people's demands. So that means the labour share of income goes up and inequality goes down. And this is what I'm currently writing a book about, Strikes in New Zealand. Um, so when you constrict strikes, and strikes have been constricted in a major way since 1991, so most forms of strikes have been made illegal, it means that the workers' bargaining power and union bargaining power has gone down a lot. And this has had an effect on inequality. But, it, but there are many other causes of inequality, but I think that's a really important one. And illegal strikes are really hard to pull off now. Yeah. Um, you could be fined in a major way. And so I know there's still some illegal strikes happen, but compared to the 1970s when there were so many illegal strikes, like there was a general strike in New Zealand in 1979, which was completely illegal. 300,000 yeah. plus people attended it, attended it, but they couldn't prosecute them because the Department of Labor had to prosecute over 300,000 people. But we haven't really seen the return of that yet. Yeah. But it's one thing to think about when we're talking about protest and inequality. It'll be very interesting to see if it gets that extreme or, or people get that desperate, I suppose, is really the end result yes. of that, is the cause of that. Mm. Um, and very lastly, a real curly one, yeah. or maybe not, do you think the voting age should be lowered to 16? To 16? Oh, I'd... Maybe Grant can answer that question. <laughs> um, hey Grant, are you there, Grant? Could you, if you are, could you put your mic? Yes. What do you think, Grant? Um, why have a voting age at all? If you can tick the box, you can tick the box. Um, but um, yeah, so that's a question in itself. But uh, lowering the age, yes. I'm not quite sure why, though. Um, is, is the purpose to increase voter participation? And I think it you see. It's actually Shona that said it, so I think she could turn her mic on. But I know it was around the time Toby was talking about in, the inequality for youth. And right. so I would suspect it was with reference to that. Was that it, Shona? Oh. Um, yes, quite a lot. I mean, I think my daughter's um, a lot more politically aware than I was at mm. their age. And they have been for a very long time. Um, I think social media has helped a lot with that. Mm. Um, but, you know, that we've been discussing politics at the dinner table since they were about 12, well, you know, with, with real I, intelligence, you know. Well, Shona, I take my hat off to you as a mum. Um, not all kids have that over-the-table conversation. Um, and I think the low voter turnout amongst young people has got a lot to do with them not being sure about what politics is about and about whom to vote for. They don't understand the system. And uh, part of it is that there's a lot of stuff competing for their attention online these days. And a lot of it is a much more exciting than politics. So... Um, so I think I, what I'm getting at is that if your objective is to increase participation, I'm not sure that lowering the age would necessarily help. I'm not saying it wouldn't. Um, but um, if your intention is to increase representation to include younger people, well, then yes, I guess it would make a little bit of difference. I, I think the thing is, is that um, what a, a lot of the stuff that we're discussing now in the political sphere um, is going to majorly impact on their futures and they have they would like to have a say on their futures um, yeah. 
they you know it's a big big thing when we're talking about climate change and also um social justice um social justice is a huge topic or it seems to be for my daughter's age group um you know well, that, case, why haven't why have an age limit at all as i say if you mm -hmm. can if you can hold a pen and and fill out a form as a valid vote what does it matter what age you are mm. That's that's very provocative. I don't think that a uh, general general um, populace would accept that. Um, I think that they might just accept a lowering to 16, just the way that they accepted the lowering from 21 to 18. Um, but 16 seems to be the start starting of legal age for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, so and also most of them are still in school at that age, and I think it's an opportunity perhaps for them to learn more about. Um, about the uh, about politics from a, from a uh, an educational um, way um, much more than they do now. Um, I think if they if they were going into year ten um, and eleven, um, knowing that they were going to be voting, I think that the schools would be more inclined to put on um, make make sure it's part of the curriculum and discussed in social um, social classes. Yeah. Just a comment that's um, interesting to me that Fiona's just made, Fiona Brooker, um, and we've just been through the process of making sure all the families have digital access for schooling. So you, you can see that change at many levels happening to not just re regarding education, but that ability to be better informed. I'm with you, Grant. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, I've met a few younger people and thought they don't have the nuance to grasp the consequences of their choices. That, that's the only thing with age, you know, often with age comes in-depth understanding that you didn't have at that age. And I know that scientists, well, not you, our brains <laughs> aren't developed till we're 25, <laughs> but you know what, easy. I'm actually with you, if you can tick the box, maybe, because yeah. it's not compulsory here. If it was right. compulsory, I think it'd be different, but if it's not compulsory, I reckon, yeah, why have an age group? Why limit it? Yeah, I thank you for that. Thank, thank you, Michelle. And uh, once again, um, I want to thank all the speakers that uh, participated this week, but um, especially um, Grant and Toby today. And uh, special thanks again to Michelle for for being um, being my co-host and on hand to help with um, technology and, and chat rooms. It makes um, makes it so much easier. Um, and thanks again to Ancestry, to, to Jason and to Nicholas for supporting us this week. Um, uh, very much appreciate it. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website 